I thought there'd be video. I, I'm late because I got dressed in a shirt and tie for the occasion. I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you and others of your kidney or infected with this vicious virus that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now if you don't worry. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and today we have back in the co-host chair, the one and only Matt Berkey. Welcome back, Berkey. How's it going? Hi, this is Matt Berkey. Welcome back. Matt Berkey, who dressed up in a shirt and tie for the occasion. Unfortunately, we are unable to see this because we only have audio today. Yeah, we're back. If, if we were smart, we would have done, we would have waited to release our Blues Brothers episode to the week this is the 40th anniversary, and we were a few months early. We were. At least we got it out the same calendar year. Yeah, we planned that. The Girl Can't Help It is the movie we're going to be talking about this evening. Yeah, the movie itself is hard to track. I agreed to do this with you, thinking I could just stream it on one of the three three big services. So about three months ago, I'm in a Saturday afternoon, well, Saturday morning afternoon film club with my friend and rotating Movies at Rock co-host Nick Bamback. And we chose to do this movie. It was like maybe early June. We were really struggling because, you know, people assumed that it was on, you know, Amazon or, you know, you could rent it somewhere, but you can't. It's the only place we could really find a copy was on YouTube for free. And it's not a great quality print, unfortunately. You said you got it from a library originally? I borrowed the DVD from the public library. Yeah, I, I would have probably done the same thing had it not been so difficult to even get access to library materials right now, unfortunately. It is unfortunate. Yeah, but I, I really had a ball with this movie both times I watched it. The first time, and even more the second time, I think I liked it even more because I focused more on the music and the uh, the performances, which are so, so fun and really influential, too, for rock and roll. I, I mean, yeah, this is a reason to watch the movie. Is It's just a time capsule of 1950s rock and roll. 100%. Yeah, the music is really the main event here. And I mean, when the first time I heard about this movie was from Paul McCartney from the Beatles talking about how after he saw this movie, him and John Lennon both saw this movie, like when it first came out, it, it was a game changer for them, made them pick up guitars and, and like, like that alone has its place in history, <laughs> but there's so much more to it than just that. But Well, that is one of my notes though, is that th this is the rock music that people like the Beatles were listening to and influenced them. Where else are you going to get? unless uh, high quality footage of these rocky rock and rollers in their prime, great audio, great high quality footage of 1950s performances. And yeah, there's, I don't know if you've ever seen clips of people playing on the Ed Sul Sullivan show. It was, Here a, there. Mm -hmm. it was a TV show. So the tape they used wasn't as great. Not all of it was saved. And so this is high quality time capsule of 1950s rock and roll rockabilly. Yeah. And from what I understand, I, I watched an interview with John Waters um, about this movie because this is one of his favorite movies. And he was he kind of mentioned that this was probably the first real Hollywood sanctioned rock and roll movie before they were all really like campy B movies. It was see rock and roll was kind of still an underground cult genre. But this was one of the first, if not the first big budget 
Hollywood produced rock and roll films, which is pretty right. cool. Yeah, this isn't a terrible Elvis movie. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. And I also want to take a minute to talk about the amazing, amazing visuals. The color in this movie, the, the deluxe color that well, they use is and, so eye-popping. And the movie brags about it too, because it, start, <laughs> it starts in black and white in a short uh, square. I believe mm-hmm. it's taking a swipe at television. Because this, the 1950s, that's when cinema started to worry about TV, which was becoming more popular. I'm getting TV for free at home. Why should I go to the theater? And so, yeah, it starts nice in black and white. And we're introduced to our protagonist, Tom Ewell, who was also in the seven-year itch with Marilyn Monroe, a very lucky actor. Yes, he is. Working with Jane Mansfield and Marilyn Monroe. Getting to kiss both. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's a really iconic beginning, too, with the widescreen color by Deluxe. Oh, yeah. He brags about CinemaScope. Used from 1953 to 1967 for shooting widescreen movies. That's one of the things they used to help separate television from film. It's CinemaScope. Clearly, you can't get the same experience on your little you know, TV screen at home. In 2020, you probably could approach it, but it's still not quite the same. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty recently since TVs have become widescreen and, and of, of theater quality. The opening credit sequence, is, I think, is one of my all-time favorite opening credit sequences. It's so much fun. The colors, right. the dancing, it's it's so high energy. Because Tom keeps talking and just they turn up the radio to drown him out and it's the song The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard. Little Richard whose fingerprints are all over this movie in, in, the, in the best possible way. Yeah, he'll, he'll come up again. But yeah, the song The Girl Can't Help It, it's a nice jam. I'd dance to it. Oh, absolutely. And isn't that the song that was featured in that Fergie song as well, if I'm not mistaken? What? what? Fergie? <laughs> Fer- Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas. She sampled that song. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big Black Eyed Peas fan, Josh. Oh, I, I'm not either. It was just all over the place. Like, I, I actually heard it at a grocery store not that long ago. And I'm, for a second, I was like, oh, it's the Girl Can't Help It playing at a grocery store. And I'm like, oh, no, it's the Fergie song. I'm very good at avoiding popular music somehow. You, you must be because that song was all over the place. Because I remember uh, like seeing kids' high school shirts and they're all saying, we're bringing sexy back. I went, what's that from? Why does everyone keep saying it? And then four <laughs> years later, for the first time, I hear the song, we're bringing sexy back by Justin Timberlake. I was like, oh, that's why everyone was saying that four years ago. But I don't know what I'm doing with my life that... I can go years without being in the zeitgeist of pop music. I'm sure that has its perks. So we have our first meeting with Fats Murdoch. Well, we start with Tom in a bar drinking his sorrows away, trying to get another band signed. So Tom's drinking like a fish. He's just got the bottle of scotch. I've got some scotch here to, uh, in honor of the movie. Tom just keeps pouring himself drinks, and, and you establish he's not doing very well getting any musical act signs. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, cut to Marty Fats Murdoch. A slot machine mobster, as it has been described. <laughs> yeah, Josh, you, so you love slot machines? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't mind slot machines. I, I haven't been to too many casinos before, but yeah. I've only been to one casino, and I hated it. Yeah, I, it depends on the casino. The ones by me are not that great, but I've been to a couple out of town that were a little bit better. I like playing cards, but I can't get excited about slots the last time i was excited about slot it was it was a slot machine game inside a video game oh okay it's not something i could do often once in a blue moon i don't mind there's josh down at the penny slots that's right 
<laughs> but yeah, Marty Fats Murdoch is played by uh, character actor Edmund O'Brien. He had a lot of westerns. He was in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valanche. Valanche. He was also in, I didn't realize he was in also White Heat, which is a movie that I loved. Um, oh, yeah. Are you also a film noir fan? Oh, one of my favorites, yeah. Oh, great. We'll have to Definitely. find a film noir that rocks. Yeah, we should do like a side cast called Film Noirs that Films Noir That Rock. Uh, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but yes, I'm a big film film noir fan. So, so am I. We'll have to discuss that some other time. Definitely. So Marty looks up uh, Tom, and Tom owes two to three grand around town, which roughly would be like if you were twenty grand in debt today. And then we get a, we get the history of Marty Fats Murdoch, used to be Slim Murdoch, hid out in Europe, came back, got busted for income tax evasion, and he's got this this girlfriend. This he's got a dame named Jerry Jordan, played by the voluptuous Jane Mansfield. Which you don't really hear ladies called dames anymore, probably for good reason. Probably for good reason, yes. <laughs> but Tom makes a deal with the devil, Fats Murdoch. But this is a very funny scene because Tom's giving this monologue of how it'll never work. And the doors slowly open behind him and there's the elegant Jane Mansfield in an evening gown. <laughs> yes. And he finally turns around and he's shaking his drink so hard the glasses are, the ice is just clink, 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 clink. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One thing I want to throw out there about Jane Mansfield's character throughout this movie, she's com- almost completely oblivious as to the fact of how how attractive every man finds her she seems to have no clue well i think it's a little bit ironic because i think jane mansfield was in on it and that's part of the character is she was playing it up and that's that's part of fully part of jane mansfield's uh persona is is, yeah uh, as a sex symbol of the 50s but i wasn't sure that her character in this movie was totally aware but her as an actress was very much aware, and I think that does kind of come over in the movie a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, you have to be pretty clever to play a convincing dumb person. Right, right. And uh, she's hitting all the all the comedic beats perfectly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she's amazing in this. And, and just she also died very young and tragically in a car accident in 1967. And her, her daughter, the famous Law & Order famous Mariska Hargitay, was in the car with her, I believe, when it happened. Mm-hmm. And she was very, she was, I don't even think she was 10 years old at that point. Yeah, Jane Manfield, Jane Mansfield is a really fascinating character. I'm surprised there haven't been more biographies about her. Yeah, yeah, I am too. She seemed like she was a little bit more elusive than somebody like, say, Marilyn Monroe. Right, we had that, there was that Marilyn Monroe film from a few years ago. But nothing really about Jane Mansfield, and I think she's just as fascinating, if, if not more, because she was a lot more mysterious. Well, and then we get to one of our first big numbers. Well, after the Little Richard, it's My Idea of Love by Johnny Olin. This this song's a bit of a crooner, and I like the next song he plays better called I Ain't Gonna Cry No More. And that, that has that nice kind of rock. It's less less of a croon crooning song and more rockabilly. I guess what the music in this, these aren't songs or bands I have in my regular rotation, but I like the music. Yeah, same with me. I've heard people complain that the songs, which I, I don't, I think it's kind of a silly complaint, but I've heard people complain that the songs don't connect with the plot as Who's the way they should. But who, who <laughs> we, we had a couple anonymous people that I'll keep it at our movie club who had a problem right. with the songs not connecting with the plot, but that's a whole right. So you got but. some idiots in your movie club. <laughs> I'll plead the fifth in that one. <laughs> but <laughs> So he started showing around Jerry around town uh, and t- Tom pays his bar tab and the, and the owner replies, what you find? What'd you find? Uranium? 
And that, that's, <laughs> I feel like that's such a 1950s line. Totally. There's some real zingers in this script. I love, love the comedy in it. Yeah. It, Tom cuts a rug da- dancing with the cigarette girl. That's also something you don't have in bars anymore. Just dames <laughs> walking around offering cigarettes. Right. Or really cigarettes in general. <laughs> no, there's a lot of smoking in this film, but yeah. that, that is to be expected. Tom drinks too much and he's hungover and Jerry's the next day, Jerry's walking to his apartment. And this is a very funny series of events. So he gets directions to his apartment from the newspaper kid and he, he wolf whistles. She, she <laughs> that little kid is a little spark plug. Yeah. She walks by the ice delivery truck and the ice melts. The milkman's carrying a milk bottle and the, the milk explodes as a geyser out of it. <laughs> Which is... A very, very strong innuendo for 1956. It's a little on the nose. A little bit, yeah. And then she gets in the building. She's going up the stairs, and an old man gets a nice look at her gams. His glasses shatter. And then this, uh, so do you know the director, Frank Tashlin? Yeah, he was known mostly for like Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah, he was an animator at Warner Brothers. And then this, I feel like this really shows his Looney Tunes background. These are gags I could see straight out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Oh, 100%. Even just the way that that Jane Mansfield walks down the street with that little hip swagger, Mm -hmm. you know. And also, too, this is the next appearance of the title song, The Girl Can't Help It, that they play over this whole sequence. Right, and it's a very apropos. It, this song definitely goes with the movie. Let your movie club friends know. But yeah, it's it's like watching a live action cartoon. It's very funny. So she just kind of breaks into Tom's apartment, <laughs> and he's. I don't know how often you get hungover, Josh. I get hung hungover about as often as I go to casinos. Oh boy, which is not that often. <laughs> but he stumbles out of bed in some very nice pajamas. I, not a lot of people own the button up pajamas anymore, matching. Yeah, that's a lost that's a lost thing. I had a few of those back in the day. <laughs> back, back in the 50s. <laughs> back in the day. Back back in my uh in my youth. <laughs> hmm. They're they're not that comfortable though. <laughs> they look fancy, but I guess if you're trying to go to sleep, I, I can't imagine going to bed with buttons. <laughs> so more on the nose humor, Jerry walks in with holding the milk jugs in front of her chest. And it just it's just I'm laughing, but also going, come on. We get right. it. It's and, so ridiculous. Probably back in that that time, back in the fifties, you had to be that direct, or else it was going to go right over people's heads. I'm loose. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think you do. I'm loosening my collar, thinking of the scene. Oh, true. <laughs> but there's some real racy lines here in the kitchen, so you can start working on me. <laughs> and been in men's bedrooms before. Before she clarifies, she has seven brothers. Right, yeah, that one was that one made me laugh out loud. The scene where where he's in the shower, <laughs> he's like, oh, you, "I'm in here." Right. Oh, I I figured you needed this. As she's like, she's trying not to look. She's outside of the door, but her arm is reaching inside, right, offering the hangover cure. Which I right, right. I've yet to find an actual hangover cure. The best bet is just to stay hydrated while you're drinking out at night, yeah. like a water between each drink. Exactly. But after a certain number of drinks, you're not that smart anymore. And then we have some more funny lines from Jane Pansfield. Father was hungover a lot. He was always drinking to forget mother. And Tom starts to apologize. Like, no, mother's alive. That's why he was always drinking to forget. She delivers them so well. Yeah, she de- The deadpan delivery from her is perfect. It's kind of amazing how her character is a bit of a caricature, but she still doesn't overplay it. No, it's still believable in this crazy Looney Tunes world. 
Right, right. She's actually maybe one of the less cartoonish characters in the movie, actually. And I guess that helps keep her believable when everyone else is acting crazy. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty big statement, not to get ahead of ourselves with, as far as the plot goes, but this movie really talks a lot about women having agency in their career and, the, and the, their choices and stuff like that. And so I guess to, to kind of dial her character down made that more believable and more impactful. They're doing drive throughs again. We need to get this on the drive through or not yeah. a drive-in. On the, they're doing drive-ins again. This would be a great drive-in number. The music, the dancing. It's only 90 minutes, which is good because drive-ins are usually double features. I tend to get a little bit antsy if movies exceed like an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> so this was ex- this was a perfect length for me. Really? I anything Once things hit like two hours, 10 minutes, I start to fade. But this movie felt even shorter because of all the uh, musical sequences. It made it fly by. Well, it's like, yeah, it's it's music videos held together by a very loose plot. But yeah. you know, this came out in 1956. Mm-hmm. And so like, where else are you going to see music videos? Everyone had radios. I don't know how popular TVs were then. They probably still mm-hmm. cost an arm and a leg. But to, for the price of a movie ticket, you get to go see a concert pretty much. Basically, yeah. After the kitchen scene, we get to see Little Richard actually perform. So we've heard him, we've heard him sing in the background. But now... Here he is playing piano, standing up, big band behind him. And this is the first, I noticed this and it was true throughout. It's and mm-hmm. they're always playing for all white audiences. I mean, it's it's the 1950s. Right. It's nothing nothing to be proud of, but the white acts and the black acts, they're all playing in these clubs and the clubs are whites only. That was the time though, you know, like that was Yeah, and, and like how does little Richard and the other uh the acts feel like Playing in a white theater versus playing in a black theater. Right. And they're receptive. I mean, the audiences are receptive to all the performances, but. Yeah, like the audiences aren't booing or throwing rocks. Right. Yeah, Little Richard, uh, Rock and Peace, as of just a few months ago, actually. Again, referring to that John Waters interview, John Waters referred to Little Richard as the king of rock and roll and the queen of rock and roll because he had kind of that, like, a little over the top, flamboyant, almost drag queen sensibility to him. I can see why John Waters liked this, because have you seen John Waters' Hairspray from the 80s? Oh, yeah. Love it. I, this has a lot of, I feel like that's where John Waters got a lot of his inspiration. Definitely. Yeah, Hairspray is kind of like this movie, but with the racial um, politics addressed a little bit more. <laughs> a little bit more a by at all. A lot bit more, yeah. <laughs> little Richard and his band are banging out the song Ready Teddy, but the next yeah. song is much better because... Tom and Jerry discuss Operation Powder Room, which <laughs> yes. is just going to wow the owners of different clubs by walking to the powder room. Very, very seductively, as she does. And so, yeah, she walks to the powder room to the, to the song She Got It by Little Richard. And yes. And she is under specific instructions that if anybody talks to her, she is to respond by saying, talk to my agent. <laughs> ask, yeah, ask my agent. Yes, that's it. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, it's a comedic effect, unintended and intended. The little moments where she has to say that, and even some of the silliest parts, is, is really funny. Ask my agent. I don't know. Ask she my changes, agent. Yeah, she changes her inflection each time. She's yeah. she's, using, she's using those three words to as much effect as she could. We get a lot of music in a row here because they're just jumping from club to club. Because the next song is Cool It Baby by Eddie Fontaine. And I don't know a lot of his work, but one of his songs called Nothing Shaken was covered by the Beatles. Oh, really? Okay. And you need to check that out. Is that something that was like on their um, Live at the BBC 
because that one doesn't ring a bell. And I know they have a lot of they do a lot of these um, rockabilly 50s covers on that collection. Yeah, it was at live at the BBC. OK, uh, they recorded it for a BBC radio show in 1963. But it's just fun to hear them because they they're listening to American rockabilly on the radio and then they get to interpret it and play it themselves. By the way, little little trivia about this movie and if we're on the subject of the Beatles, the UK television premiere of this movie was happening the night that they recorded the song Birthday from the White Album. So they stopped the session in the middle of the session to go to Paul's house to watch the broadcast of this movie. Then when it was done, they went back and finished the song. This has been trivia time on Movies That Rock. I got to get a stinger for that. I'm going to call up Steve O'Dockerson and have him write something up. I thought thought you could use mine as a stinger. I just cut out. I I do like that. You know, I'm going to stick with that one. So Jerry keeps going to the powder rooms, and here we have one of our two black actresses in the film. She's a bathroom attendant, mm-hmm. and she's confused because Jerry's just going to the bathroom and sitting down. And the next club we have, I I guess my, I don't least favorite sounds harsh, mm-hmm. but it's the song "Cinnamon Sinner" by Teddy Randazzo and the Three Chuckles. They have an accordion and a stand-up bass. He's just singing a lot of baking words. Like, she's going to make me a pie. She has a jelly roll heart. She's my cinnamon sinner. It's all very corny. It's another food term. It it feels corny in a 1950s movie about music. But Tom has a pretty good strategy, having everyone you sing to ask my agent, and he just tells all the owners, couldn't meet her price. And the next song I really love with another black performer is Abby Lincoln doing Spread the Word. Yeah, I don't know anything about her, but it was... I really appreciate it this time. Uh, she's an American jazz vocalist. and She was also uh, part of the civil rights uh, activities in the 60s. Yeah, I'm surprised she's not more of a, of a name, like doesn't have more name recognition because she's fabulous in this. Yeah, it, it's a great performance. I love her voice. I wrote down a oh, beautiful yeah. voice. So they, they end the night going from, I think they visited at least four clubs. Yeah, they're like really bar hopping. It's pretty crazy. They have, do they have clubs like that out east? Still? No, man, I wish they did. Get dinner, some go get get dressed up like I did tonight, go out, get a nice dinner, some drinks. Maybe See somewhere it. like New York City they might. You know, one of the bigger metropolitan areas, but out my way not not really. We just have kind of the sleazier techno clubs. So they end the night and uh Jerry asks Tom why does he drink so much? Just a habit, I suppose. But and then she guesses correctly that it's a girl habit and uh, asks if it was Julie London. And then he puts on a Julie London record, the song Cry Me a River. And there's really cool film effects here because whenever he's drunk and sad, he sees Julie London. It's that cool film effect where she, Julie London appears transparent in the background. And it's one of the oldest film tricks in the book, but I still think it's neat whenever I see it. And I like the song, too. The song is really pretty. It's I mean, yeah, after this, I'm going to pour more scotch and cry to the song. We find out that Fats is having his, his uh, second-in-command, Mousy, has been tailing Tom and Jerry. Oh, Tom and Jerry. Oh, oh. Tom and Jerry. I get it. Man, those I, I never made that connection until just now. So Tom and Jerry is being tracked by Mousy. It was when I said Mousy out loud that... There's another connection. Yep. Yeah. So Mousy is uh, Fats' right-hand man. He's been tracking them, and they, he thinks something suspicious is going on, because whenever Tom and Jerry go to a club, she has to go to the powder room. Well, there was that great. There was a Tom and Jerry episode where they go to a nightclub because Jack Benny was a guest star. You get you're not old enough for Jack Benny. Oh, I oh yeah, I know Jack Benny. Okay, yeah, Jack yeah. Jack Benny was on an episode of Tom and Jerry where he has a dream that he's a mouse, plays the violin. <laughs> that might have just been a Looney Tune and not Tom and Jerry. 
And Tom has another great racy line when he's trying to, to book her. She's got a great pair of lungs. <laughs> it's so amazing how they got away with stuff like that. They, how subtle they had to be because that was still during the time of the Hayes Code where you couldn't really be very racy, you know? You had to be very subtle about it. You had to clever. be very clever. Yeah. Because uh, my favorite way uh, someone broke the Hayes Code was Hitchcock. I don't remember the film, but the Hayes Code said you couldn't kiss for so many consecutive seconds. Mm-hmm. And so Hitchcock just had his actors kiss and break, kiss and break. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so it was many kisses over the official kiss time, but... But they couldn't call him out on it because he technically didn't break the rule. Mm-hmm. So they're driving out. Uh, Tom and Jerry are driving out to the casino to meet Fats and Mousy. Mm-hmm. And they have a detour for a picnic on the beach. Yes. Really lovely scene. And this yeah, this is some good character development. We find out her name's actually Georgina. Mm-hmm. And then Georgie, Ma- as he refers to her. Yes. And they, she met Mr. Murdoch because uh, Mr. Murdoch and her dad were associates. So they met at the Atlanta Penitentiary. And the, the whole reason Murdoch's obsessed with Jerry is because he wants to get married, but he wants to be in high society. So he wants to marry someone that's a well-known star. So the whole plot of the film is Mr. Murdoch wants to marry, wants to just be higher up in society. So he has to make Jerry, his dame, a big singer, then marry her. So he's out. So Mur- a Mousy and a Murdoch are out shooting skeet at the old casino. You ever shot clay pigeons? That I have not done, no. It's I've done it a few times back in the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. Got my shotgun shooting merit badge. Nice. It, it really hurt my shoulder, though, that rest of the day. Oh, yeah, I bet. That's it, true. It, shotgun has a real kickback to it. So they're, they're out at the casino shooting skeet, and they're having Murdoch and Tom have a little face-to-face talk about business. And, and here's where Mur- Murdoch isn't very nice to Jerry. He says, dumb broad, all she thinks about is cooking. He's always yeah. yelling at her to take off the apron. Yeah, that, that line kind of made me wince a little bit. Yeah. It, yeah, uh, calling someone a dumb broad. It's not something you see a lot today. No, no. And I, it, maybe it got laughs back then, but yeah, I just watching it today, uh, now, kind of cringeworthy. A little bit. But at least the, the movie, I think the movie's aged pretty well in the sense that you have moments like this, but what happens in the plot definitely goes against that, you know, it's, and it also reinforces that that Murdoch's not marrying her for love. It's that it, he has this right. harebrained idea of just moving up in society. Right. He's marrying her for status. Yeah. Yeah. But Tom grows a conscious conscience after talking mm-hmm. to Jerry about, she doesn't want to be a performer. He wants out of the contract. And then that's where Murdoch shows off his shotgun shooting skills. <laughs> And kind of scares uh, scares Tom a little. So then we're we're getting after that is where we get to the, the the scene where she fesses up to him that she doesn't want to be a famous singer. She doesn't want to perform. Mm-hmm. She wants to be a housewife. Tom pretty much tells her like, "Well, it's going to happen no matter what because Murdoch is out to get you." He he says it in so many words. He's not that upfront about it, but you know, it, like whether or not you want to be one, whether or not I want you to be one, is beside the point because it's going to happen because Murdoch's going to make sure that it happens. He starts to teach her a song. Come to find out, she sings it completely off key, entirely tone deaf, shrill sound. He's trying to warm up her voice. She can't find the note. And then the light bulb shatters. Right before this, we get a a really great rockabilly performance. 
Oh, I skipped a I skipped a performance. Yeah. You skipped Bebop Alula by Gene Vincent and his blue caps. And I know it's them because they're all wearing blue caps. And <laughs> yeah, this this is a great song. It's a it's been lauded as an example of rockabilly. It was a top ten hit, and even people at the time were comparing it comparing his voice to Elvis. So this song was really iconic. It's still one of the the true foundational pieces of rock and roll music, I think. Mm-hmm. I love the way that they introduced the song as well into the movie. It's pretty cool. It feels very natural. It doesn't feel shoehorned in. No, not at all. It tells you like, oh, this is a place where people practice music and record stuff. They go in and <laughs> it's another racy line. Uh, Tom says, we need a room. And the <laughs> they look at him funny to practice singing. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry destroys the light bulb with her do, re, mi. But then he, they're actually celebrating it because they're like, oh, this is our ticket to not have you be famous, that you can actually stay home and be a, the housewife that you want and have kids, you know. <laughs> Little do they know. We get a TV performance, uh, 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran. Another legend. Another legend passed away too soon by car accident. Yeah, that, that seems to be a trend with this movie, unfortunately. Yeah, this movie was a big break for Eddie Cochran. Mm-hmm. A good way to get him known nationally. And this was one of the songs I knew from the Beatles because there's a, a clip of Paul McCartney actually covering the song on the Beatles anthology like with an acoustic guitar. They intercut him singing it with the original Eddie Cochran version from the movie, and it's pretty cool how they do it. That does sound really cool. Yeah. Yeah, because Eddie Cochran was one of the first to write and record his own songs. Yeah, that for the time period, that was a big, that's that was a pretty big, groundbreaking. Yeah. What kind of rock and roll could he have made if he'd lived through the 60s he died at the beginning of that decade and see the what what he influenced and what he could have made from that it's a real tragedy there's a lot of tragedy like that in early rock and roll i just recently covered la bamba and um the same kind of thing like you have richie richie valens who was only 17 when he died in the plane crash but he again he wrote a lot of his own music and just to think what could have happened the possibilities of what would have been had he made it just even just to adulthood you know it's just unbelievable yeah, I'm a big Buddy Holly fan, and I feel the yeah. same way. And he had so much music that they were able to release after he passed. And everyone, I think everyone likes the Big Bopper. Yeah, the Big Bopper, I think, is a little controversial. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he was important, too. I know Chantilly Lace isn't as beloved as something you know like La Bamba or... You it's know. one of the few songs I have memorized. Hello, baby. You know what I like. But I don't know any other songs by him. So the importance of Eddie Cochran is Murdoch watches that and says, see, he can't sing traditionally. He's got a new sound. I love the maid who's who's jamming in mm-hmm. the living room while watching it. And she's having the time of her life. It's so cute. I love it. Yeah, she enjoys rock and roll. Yep. So yeah, Murdoch argues, see, you don't need to sing to do rock and roll. So this is where we find out that Fats wrote a song, was writing songs in prison for the Christmas programs. Yes. And then it's rock around the rock pile. A very obvious take on rock around the clock until so, yeah they they record rock around the rock pile with her horrible with jerry's horrible vocals <laughs> that's the funny thing is it's so early in the history of rock and roll that they say that you know oh you don't really need to be able to sing to do rock and roll but that doesn't mean you can be completely tone deaf and sing rock and roll they hadn't quite figured that out in 1956 i don't think <laughs> yeah, there was no auto tune right right may have just as well been fergie singing it <laughs> Keep mentioning Fergie. I guess I'll have to look it up. I'll send you the link to that song. Hi. I can't. I can't remember what the name of that song. Let me look it up right now since I'm thinking about it. Fergie, girl, can't help it. What's it? 
Clumsy. That's what it's called. Clumsy. 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 Yeah. I, I can't wait to not listen. So Jerry's going to uh, prepare a Thanksgiving dinner for her and Tom. But then she opens the peephole and smoke flies in and she knows it's fats. And Murdoch, Murdoch hates when she cooks. She has to hide the turkey and all the Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. <laughs> the apartment. And it's such a nice looking turkey too. I was annoyed. So instead of cooking, they go out to dinner on Thanksgiving. So the whole taking uh, Jerry out for Thanksgiving, though, is a shtick so Mousy can bug her telephone. And that's why you find out his name's Mousy, quiet as a mouse. So while this is going on, Tom's in Chicago, and because he's, he's trying to get work with Mr. Wheeler, who owns all the jukeboxes around town. Yeah, he, he's a really important character that kind of comes in towards the end of the story. Yeah, he's, kind of, yeah he, he's very important and very little screen time. This kind of, this part of the movie is, slows down a little, but then the end is is a big whirlwind. Yes, very much so. Yeah, this this whole section too doesn't really even feature that many performances. No, I I don't enjoy it as much. No, <laughs> I, I feel like this is if this was streaming, this is a movie I'd put on on a Sunday when I'm cleaning the house. Yeah, and and like th- this long stretch of period, I get some good cleaning done. Mm-hmm. And there's some nice music to boogie to and watch, watch while you're uh, vacuuming and dusting. Right, right. This would be these would be the scenes I turn the vacuum on because I don't really need to hear the dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> well, you might miss a little. You'll miss basically that he's he's wiretapping a phone call. Mousy's wiretapping a phone call. Basically, the whole point of it is that he is doing this to prove to Murdoch that there, there there's no romantic connection between Tom and Jerry. But unfortunately, there is. There is, because he edits out the lovey-dovey moments in their conversation. But that that part is so funny, because Jerry starts crying, Mousy starts crying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't, you don't expect that, because Mousy's this hard gangster guy. Right, right. (laughs) That was played really well, too. But Mousy stands up to his boss. Because Murdoch isn't as dumb as he looks. He, he knows there's something fishy going on. Mm-hmm. And Mousy protects him. He burns the tape. Then we finally get another big music number. Rockin' is our business by the Treneers. And they're an American R&B blues group led by two twins, hmm. a Cliff and Claude Trenier. Yeah, I, I had never heard of this group before, but I, they really impressed me. I hadn't either. It's a nice rhythm and blues. So this yeah. is definitely another band I'm going to check out. This band also looks like a lot of the others because it's this is before you had a nice tight three, four person rock and roll outfit. Uh-huh. This is when yeah. everyone thought rock bands would have a lot of brass and horns and an offshoot of like the, the jazz big band kind of thing. Yeah. And the, I mean, the band is about the same size as the Blues Brothers band. Right, right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's even like reminiscent of, you know, like Cab Calloway kind of thing, you know? Right, because it's it's back when bands had you had to have some horns and some strings and the yep. guitar. Absolutely. Yep. Before rock and roll was just kind of associated as drums, guitar, bass, singer. Right. Which like Buddy Holly and the Beatles helped shift that away. But I like I like that full band sound. It really makes gives it a nice rich flavor. I I mean that's kind of Chicago's whole shtick, right? Ha- being the rock band with horns. Uh, true. And a Blood Sweat and Tears, I think, was another one around the same time that did the same thing. Hmm. Yeah, they were good, and so Mister Wheeler is is overseeing their recording. Tells him he's got they're going to get another gold record, and so yeah, here we have our Tom has the conversation with Mister Wheeler, plays the song, 
and Tom gets roughed up and thrown out of the building. And it's because apparently Mr. Wheeler was also a gangster back in the day, and he doesn't he's still mad at Fats Murdoch. Right. There's 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 some bad blood between them. So as right. soon as he finds out that it's his protege, he's throws him over the edge. They had competing uh slot machine empires. And then we go to a scene with some more great pajamas. And Mur- Murdoch yells, what do you mean? He's wearing your pajamas. Who'd wear striped pajamas? I- I'd wear striped pajamas. Oh, yeah, definitely. I-, I thought they looked very nice. A little candy cane-like, I guess. Here, uh, Jerry actually starts to stand up for herself, which I felt was progressive for a 50s movie. Definitely. Especially in a movie where they, they make it such a point to to you know show her as being the object of every man's desire, <laughs> you know? Right. Ice melting, milk exploding. Right. Glasses shattering. Like Tom, uh, Tom tries to get out of bed to intervene and Mousy stops him with a great line. I've never seen Jerry mad. Maybe she'll kill him. <laughs> yeah. Whose side is Mousy on? Yeah, I wasn't really sure about that. He's sort of, I, he, it's like he's stuck between two worlds, kind of. Or, well, or, like he's a former gangster, so like who's going to hire him besides his old boss, Murdoch? Right, right. Like, but he uh, still empathizes with Jerry. But it's like not really friends. Yeah. But, yeah, he's kind of like divided loyalties there. Yeah. Jerry dumps the bully on. Yeah. On the Murdoch, and Mousy shakes her hand. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's no record deal because uh, the, the, the gangster background. And then we get another, we get a pretty funny montage of Fats and Mousy being gangsters. And like, so who, who gets, who, where your jukebox come from? And then they, every time they find out it's a Wheeler jukebox, they destroy it. They get a, Mur, they get a Murdoch music jukebox instead. That was also very Looney Tunes, the way uh, jukeboxes were being destroyed and thrown out of windows. Yeah. Yep. So over the top and violent. It made me a little sad because jukeboxes are cool machines. My grandpa had one in his house. Really? It was, yeah, it didn't take co- coins. It was programmed to just be a home one. Okay. It was, lo- it was loaded with 45s. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it was just part of Grandpa's house. I remember growing up. You just go over, press a button, here comes a country and western single. Wow. And I didn't realize that they sold them like home specific. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine it was cheap. No, it, I'm sure it, not. Yeah. It still worked uh, the whole time he was alive. Wow. Is it, does it still exist? Like does somebody in your family have it or no? I don't know what, ha- I think he had to sell it as okay. final years. Oh, okay. When things started to deteriorate. Yeah. So. Oh, that's still really awesome though. But yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, it's a pretty cool experience. Going to go to grandpa's house. He has a jukebox. Fat goes to war against Wheeler jukeboxes. And this draws the attention of Mr. Wheeler. Hmm. Because Fats goes to town. They'd mention all the cities. He's going up and down the East Coast. Other states yeah. like New York. Yeah. Like he, maybe he has more connections. He has more mousies around than we thought. It's entirely possible. It seemed, it, I got the impression that he had a pretty huge enterprise before. Right. So he's telling everything. all his lieutenants to check, check out any jukebox joint and destroy it. Like we're getting in the jukebox gag rig now. But then after this, Fats and Mousy have a little heart to heart. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to get somebody to marry, remember? And Mousy just kind of reminds us of the whole plot of the movie. Right. <laughs> remember, you're trying to make Jerry famous so you have a somebody to marry. Yeah. Yeah, Mousy's less a, less a character than he is just kind of like a plot cipher. Mr. Exposition. 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Wheeler's flying in from Chicago to New York to deal with Murdoch personally. So yeah, this movie could have ended like The Godfather. And then we get another musical performer by someone that I recognize just on site, Fats Domino, and his gorgeous song, Blue Monday. Blue Monday, which no listeners was not later covered by New Order. I do also like that Blue Monday and the cover of the New Order Blue Monday that they used in the Wonder Woman trailer. That's in my running Get Psyched playlist. Under a Fats Domino, he just passed away in 2017. Yes. Yeah, he lived a really long, wonderful life. Yeah, passed away at 89. Uh, Another song of his I love is Ain't That a Shame. And this one, he's playing Blue Monday on stage. It's really great. And then Murdoch is upset and Mousy admits to editing the tapes. Murdoch's reaction is a little bit unexpected. It is, yeah. Because yeah, this is where all, Murdoch also says it's some foreshadowing. Murdoch says, I just I always loved music. Murdoch is, is very much okay with it, with the romance, yeah. Right, everyone's starting to figure out what they actually want. Not long after Jerry confesses her love to Tom. Right, there's another musical number, though, right before Tom gets a kiss. Oh, is it the platters? Yes, you'll never, okay. never know by the platters. Yeah, love the platters. The, they're they're one of my favorites from this era. Really, I don't know much about them other than they're in this movie. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, like the Great Pretender is one that I've I've always loved um, as a kid. But yeah, it's it's kind of like a barbershop quartet with also a female singer. Right, right. Smoke It's In Your Eyes, it's another one. It's a huge classic. It's a beautiful song. It seems like some nice classy music to listen to in my my bow tie and scotch. Absolutely. So yeah, Tom uh, and Jerry confess their love for each other. Mm-hmm. Tom gets a kiss from Jane Mansfield. And then Jerry goes out on stage, but instead of singing Rock Around the Rock Pile, which her whole backing band is dressed in black and white prisoner outfits. Right. <laughs> a little gimmicky. A little bit, but it does make it does make the humor of this moment even better. Right. But instead of singing that, she sings every time it happens. Yes. And now that, that is not Jane Mansfield singing. No, it was I can't remember who, who dubbed it, but it was, it was dubbed by Eileen Wilson. OK, he's a famous big band singer. Oh, and all right. He had a radio show in uh, 48 and 49 that she hosted with Frank Sinatra. Oh my gosh, wow. And that, no must, that must have been an amazing sounding radio show. Seriously, right? Wow. And her, like the voice from here and then and Frank Sinatra together. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that exists somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a YouTube rabbit hole, I think. <laughs> well, but I know with a lot of those old radio programs that mm-hmm. sometimes they're just lost to time. But yeah, because this. The vocals on this song are amazing. Yeah, what a voice, yeah. It's a little singing in the rain with the dubbing, but they don't really talk about it. But here we find out in the plot, Jerry can actually sing. She was faking faking the bad singing before. Right, because she didn't want to be a a singing star. Right, and so she's much more clever than people think she is. Yeah. And I love that big subversion in the plot. I thought it's so clever. mm -hmm. I, I did not see it coming. The no, the first time, time I, I yeah. this, I was, I thought she was just another dame. Sorry, podcast listeners, for spoiling a sixty-four-year-old twist. Right, <laughs> but I feel like you've had time to see the movie, so she can sing. And then Murdoch's there, and this is where everything—they're tying all their loose ends really quickly together. Yeah, so yeah, Wheeler, it's a really breakneck ending. <laughs> yeah, Wheeler's there with his men. They're going to shoot Murdoch, 
And they throw, mm-hmm. but then they throw Murdoch on the stage, and he's performing his big band number, "Rock Around the Rock Pile." And he's very Fred Flintstone in this scene. The loud, boisterous, like half yelling singing. I'm going to just say this: his whole performance is so over the top. Uh, he, Edmund O'Brien is chewing the scenery, and I think that's the only way to play this role. You're in a cartoon movie. You're being a like playing against Jane Mansfield. But during the performance, Wheeler and his men are about to shoot him. And then they, Wheeler has a change of heart. He's like, no, we'll sign him. Right. <laughs> like they can put aside their slot machine past to make some money together. And so uh, it ends on the same stage it began on. Yeah. And But uh, this time Tom and Jerry are married with their big family of kids. Murdoch comes out and uh, Tom's his agent. We hear the line, ask my agent again. Yeah. <laughs> it even ends like a Looney Tune because the it fades to black, but Edmund O'Brien, uh, the the actor who played Fats Murdoch, is yeah. running towards the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I I was waiting for it to be like a pew, you know, like they do at the end of the cartoons. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that noise. Yep. Yeah, the porky yeah. pig gets in the circle. Yes, exactly. So the next year, Frank Tashlin, the director of this film, also directed another picture with James Mansfield called oh, okay. Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Ah, uh, okay. I saw that title in his credits. I didn't realize it was another Gene Mansfield movie. Right. Well, he, Tash, Frank Tashlin is quoted as saying, there's nothing in the world to me that's funnier than big breasts. <laughs> and then I think this movie proves it. Right. <laughs> kind of going off of that, I'm going back to John Waters for a minute, but he also commented on, on the, the – Jane's cleavage and how basically when this movie was made, it was just assumed that every man in America was attracted to a gigantic bosom. But now years and years later, in hindsight, a woman who has, you know, a chest like that is seen almost as as a novelty. And I wonder if this movie played a role in in changing some of that perspective. Yay, progress, I think. I guess. People are thinking more about a woman's brains rather than her bosom, but who knows? <laughs> I don't know. You and I spent some time laughing at all the bosom shots in this film. True, true. They are played for comedy. And I, and I think I feel a little bit better about laughing at the bosom shots in this movie because it does pull the rug out from underneath you at the end when it turns out that she's pretty much the smartest person in the movie. The, I think they're played for comedy in a tasteful way. Yeah, definitely. I, I, the dresses are still awfully risque. Sure, sure, but they're but they're clever and they're funny and and they're and she just looks amazing in them. Oh yeah, she 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 wears everything very well. The costume design in this movie also doesn't get enough love. The elegant gowns and even like you said, even the pajamas <laughs> are even really amazing. Yeah, they're just the, that that era of everyone wearing suits or getting dressed up to go out and mm-hmm. no, yeah. It's- it's a fun time, and I feel like it still holds up. Uh, there's a lot of movies from the 1950s that are problematic by today's standard. Yeah. And then even if you're not going to watch the movie, Josh and I both recommend Find the Soundtrack. Oh, yeah. It's such an important piece of American music history. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of music that influenced the Beatles. Yeah. Yep. And even uh, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page of the Yardbirds were big fans of this film. Oh, really? Wow. Apparently, though, it was when it first came out, Critics were not very kind to this movie. Yeah, I can see uh, the movie has. It's a movie is some rock and roll numbers with a thin plot holding it all together. Yeah, that's true. It's easier to see in hindsight how influential it was, but at the time, also at the time too, rock and roll was kind of 
looked down upon. You well, know? and Tom says that in the beginning, he talks about using modern music, which is it's yeah. funny to hear, like think of this as modern music, right? <laughs> but it, yeah, it was real cutting edge at the time. Like, I mean, it, some even some of the people in the movie, like Eddie Cochran, you know, seen as he's he comes off as such a delinquent and you know with the attitude and the swagger that he has and he's so he looks so rough and tumble you know that was kind of kind of pushed pushed the boundaries a little bit back in the 50s i mean yeah that's if rock and roll isn't pushing boundaries you're doing it wrong right right but yeah i think i i want to listen to the soundtrack again i want to i want to look into more music by like the trainers and um uh, maybe not Teddy Rendazzo so much, but and the, <laughs> Abby, so, Abby Lincoln. I want to, yeah, I, I want to listen to more Abby Link, Lincoln. Uh, Johnny Olin, he did the crooner, yeah. like maybe explore that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I want to know more about the platters. You can always listen to Fats Domino. The Trineers we were both impressed by. Yeah, and yeah, that was kind of a surprise. They should pleasant be pleasant surprised. Yeah, they should be better known, I feel like. Oh, and how about how about Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys? <laughs> the Giddy Up a Ding Dong. It's always funny when Ding Dong's in a song title. Oh, I thought this was a classy podcast. Up until this point. Yeah. Time to take off the tie. Right, exactly. It's a good family film. A good way to introduce kids to the yeah. early rock and roll. Yeah, I think the, the sexual innuendo is subtle enough that it's not going to offend people too much. Well, I mean, yeah. the, the little newspaper kid got it. He delivered a couple pretty good lines there. Oh, yeah. Uh, if she's a girl, then what does that make my sister? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was a good one. Yeah, that little street punk. Apparently he was nominated for the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest Movie Musicals, but was not voted on the list. This was? Yeah. yeah. I did not make it. I was wondering the same thing. And now I wonder what movies did make it that probably Is don't deserve to be on there. General disrespect towards rock and roll or... Some people have a weird definition of musical because we talked about on the Blues Brothers episode is the mm-hmm. Blues Brothers a musical? And this has the same as the Blues Brothers. It's a movie with songs in the middle, but mm-hmm. do you have to sing through the plot for it to be a musical? I don't know. Right. Oh, apparently the list is only 25 movies. Maybe if they had expanded it to 100 movies, it might have had a shot. Can you guess what the number one is? Number one musical? Yes. West Side Story. No, West Side Story is number two. Number one is Grease. No, Grease is at 20. This list is awful. <laughs> I actually agree with the number one that they right. have. What is the number one? The aforementioned Singing in the Rain. All right. I mean, if, if Singing in the Rain is a musical, then this is a musical. Oh, yeah, definitely. Singing in the Rain always makes me sad because I never learned to tap dance. So, yeah, so what was your favorite musical performance from the The Girl Can't Help It? There's a few that are in the running. Um, she's got it's up there, the Little Richard. Um, well, Little Richard must have been amazing to see live. Oh yeah, I bet he puts on quite. The, he used to put on quite a show. Right. Um, spread the words up there. Spread the word by Abby Lincoln. That mm-hmm. was that was shot so well. Oh yeah, and I think Rockin' is our business. But I think maybe it's a three way tie between those. And the reason I. Um, kind of gravitated towards the more unknown ones. It was for that reason, because it was kind of a revelation to see these artists that you don't hear about anymore. Yeah, I like uh, seeing Eddie Fontaine play Cool It Baby. Yeah, that was great, too. That was really great. 
I mean, the world knows about, you know, Gene Vincent and, you know, Fats Domino and everything, but you don't hear anything about those other, a lot of these other artists and their, their, their performances were just on par with everybody else's. Yeah. It's just a perfect uh, capturing of the time of mm-hmm. the, of the mo- the popular music. Yeah. Did you pick your favorite? I, yeah, I said the uh, Eddie Fontaine's Cool It Baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And we both agreed that it's hard to top uh, Abby Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Great. Well, thank you for joining us for The Girl Can't Help It from 1956. This has been Movies That Rock. Yes, sir. And, Berkey, where can we where can we find you out in the World Wide Web and beyond? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MR. What's my Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MR underscore Berkey. <laughs> Very good. And you can find my personal Twitter is Josh F618. And the Movies at Rock Twitter is Rock Movies Pod at Rock Movies Pod. And the email address, if you'd like to talk about anything that you've heard today, like if one of the, the my movie club friends has some words, wants to have some words with us about <laughs> some of the content, you can find us at Movies at Rock Pod at gmail.com. Please leave a review. I'm hoping that now that Berkey's been on again, that we can double the review number. I'm on two more reviews. What else are you yes. people doing? You're listening right, to the right. podcast. You have time. Yeah, there's no reason. There's no reason to not put in a review. So make that happen, good or bad. If it's bad, only direct it to me, not to my guests, because they, they don't deserve it. Um, <laughs> they don't deserve the bad reviews, um, but I do. So direct it towards me. And you can find... I think we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, and I'm hoping by the end of September to maybe get us on Stitcher as well. So that would be cool. So Wow. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere you look, you can see movies that rock. <laughs> so Berkey, thanks so much for, for coming on and doing this. This was fun. Thanks for having me back. I had a great time. My 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 pleasure. And I hope that you in, enjoy the rest of your evening, whether you choose to have scotch and stay in your suit, or if you decide to put on your button-down pajamas I, and have I, another glass of scotch, <laughs> whatever you choose. I hope I'm going to be up for another hour. I might put a mask on and go for a walk dressed in the nines. Oh, there you go. Yeah, put on some platters and uh, and get take a little twilight stroll. I like it. Thanks, Josh. Take yeah, care. Yeah, my, my pleasure. You too. Can't help it. Girl can't help it. Can't help it. Girl can't help it. If she walks by, the men folks can't help it, the girl can't help it. If she wins tonight, the grass lights turn the toe. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. If she got a lot of what they call the mole. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. The girl can't help it, she was born to please. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. And if she's got a bigger maid to squeeze. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. I want you to kindly be aware, the girl can't help it. It's a mess for rising every mother's son. Can't help it, girl, can't help it. If she's smiling, beefsteak become well done. Can't help it, girl, can't help it. She made grandpa feel like 21. Can't help it, the girl, can't help it. The girl can't help it, she was born.